Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Welcome, listeners, to the latest edition of The Other Hand podcast. Today, just want to look at the Israeli situation. We had a very strong U.S. labor market report out of the United States last week, which I think warrants a little bit of discussion and then there's a lot of Irish stories. We have the budget on Tuesday. Last week, we had the latest quarterly economic outlook from the ESRI. And there's a couple of interesting points about that. One was some work it has done on the trajectory of house prices. And it'll bring yourself and myself back into the realms of the effectiveness of supply in controlling house prices. But also there was a downward revision to its growth prospects for the Irish economy for 2023, but more importantly for 2024. And it, it has issued some advice to the Department of Finance ahead of delivery of the budget. One of the things we saw, um, well, we all received on the Friday night before the budget is the release at midnight of the white paper on receipts and expenditure from the Department of Finance. It's basically laying out the trajectory of revenue and expenditure for the current year and for the coming year before any budget day changes are made. Then, obviously, on budget day, changes will be made to expenditure and taxation, and those figures will and those projections will change. One of the interesting points that I noted in that white paper was the fact that corporation tax is now projected to come in $750 million lower than expected and overall taxes 500 million lower than expected so in other words the weakness we're seeing in corporation tax uh, will be compensated for by a stronger performance of income tax in particular getting back to that point about corporation tax you know we've spoken about what happened in the exchequer returns the end of september the you know the, the weakness the relative weakness of corporation tax but also you know we've we've spoken about the slowdown in exports from the chemical and pharmaceutical sector particularly you know and today on monday we got manufacturing output data for ireland which tell us something significant 
about what's going on in modern manufacturing here, which I think is a large part of the explanation for what's happening on the corporation tax side. Uh, But Chris, if I may start with the conflict in Israel and the Gaza at the moment, I have to say personally, going back to the days when I studied politics in UCD, I always had a certain level of sympathy with the Palestinian situation. Um, And I think Palestine and the Palestinians have certainly been a victim of UK imperialism. But what happened on Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, to me, is absolutely despicable. And I think anybody that comes out and provides any sort of support to what Hamas did uh, deserves to be called out. Uh, It's atrocious. Uh, You can never, ever, in any set of circumstances, justify what Hamas did in Israel at the weekend, in my view. I agree. And this is a subject area upon which I I fear to tread because I know how deeply held beliefs, views, emotions run. There are so many different strands to this. We could talk all day and not get anywhere and indeed talk ourselves into a lot of trouble with our critics. And I agree with you, Jim, that, that there is no justification. I'm old enough to remember just about the Six-Day War of 1967. And I definitely remember both the actual reading about it in the newspapers and seeing it on the news, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Uh, This was almost to the day, the anniversary of that war, 50 years, I think, 50 years and a day. What that led to in terms of both the politics and the human dimension for what happened next over the following 50 years in the Middle East what that 1973 Yom Kippur meant for the world economy during the 1970s, at risk of being crass and talking about the economic and market impact of previous conflicts. I think it's useful to remind ourselves that that 1973 conflict led to an Arab oil embargo of the West, in which there were shortages of fuel at petrol stations, and oil prices doubled and then tripled over the course of the next six or seven years. There were two oil shocks in the 1970s that directly flowed from that conflict as oil-producing Arab nations and other Middle Eastern countries, non-Arab nation in particular, one non-Arab nation in particular, joined in the oil embargo and restricted output and and prompted the stagflationary, recessionary, really economically awful era that were the 1970s. It stemmed uh, in part from from that original conflict. I'm not saying for a second that similar economic consequences will flow from this. We've had a relatively muted reaction today in oil markets. They did jump initially. They've fallen back a little bit now. Oil prices, as we speak, are up about about 3%, which isn't a huge amount, all things considered, particularly when reflecting on what happened in the 1970s. So from an economic perspective, uh, fingers crossed that it won't be too bad. I think this time around, there won't be uh, 1970s-style oil embargoes and oil price moves. But of course, the, the potential for this conflict to spill over into a broader issue is there. I think it's odds against rather than odds on, thank goodness. Uh, but I do notice that a, a US battle group, Navy fleet has moved into the eastern Mediterranean, it's been announced, and I would interpret that in the way that other military analysts have, is that that's a warning to Iran, don't get involved, at least don't get involved any more than you already have. Iran has denied 
being involved in the Hamas attacks. I have my doubts. I suspect Iran are up to it, up to their necks in it, uh, from what I have seen and read and observed. And the Americans are saying, don't get any more involved. Don't uh, allow this to, to become part of a wider conflagration. In terms of the justification that is being offered, certainly in some quarters on the hard left in this country, in the UK, there is a tradition in the hard left. We've seen it in the in parts of the Labour Party uh, in recent years that Keir Starmer has been systematically stamping out. There is an anti-Semitic strain to hard left thinking, which is a disgrace. And they often hide behind the mantra, uh, I am not anti-Semitic, but I am anti-Israel. And the reason why they say they are anti-Israel, it's because of their policies towards the Palestinians, about which lots of people will have some sympathy. The, the Palestinians plight ever since the 1940s has in many cases been desperate but it's not simple it is complicated and a lot of people would argue that the Palestinians have contributed to their own plight it's not just Israel's fault it's an argument it's a debate it's a, it's a major demarcation line between all sorts of different people but I do think the extent to which people hide their anti-semitism behind that form of words I'm anti-Israel is, is awful and I do think that there is an awful lot of anti-Semitism around the place when it comes to the support I mean, that some people have offered on social media over the weekend, demonstrations in the streets and rhetoric on uh, places like Twitter or X, which is trying to support Hamas in some shape or form, saying things like, I condemn attacks on innocent civilians, but Hamas, I understand and support why they are feeling the need to attack Israel. I think one of the afflictions taking a helicopter view of this, of Western political discourse right now in 2023 is termed whataboutery. Because whenever anything happens, whatever it is, there's always somebody to say, well, what about? And something that's going on over there justifies what's going on over here. And it's time, I think, the time has long since passed when we needed some moral and ethical and behavioral rules that are absolute rather than this moral relativism that we see practiced all over the place. And therefore, I say about what has happened, that there is an absolute no to anything that says killing innocent civilians, killing children, killing old people, raping young women, machine gunning kids at a music festival. No, there is nothing that has happened to the Palestinians that justifies anything of that. And I think this will lead to a diminution of sympathy for the Palestinians. I think it, it is almost inevitable that it will. And I would support Israel in its efforts to defend itself. Uh, those are my views, Jim. I don't know whether you would agree or disagree. I suspect uh, plenty of people would disagree. I, I would agree totally, Chris. We, we've seen Sinn Féin and the left here come out in a lot of tweets over the weekend in a very supportive way for what Hamas has done. The question is being asked if the major funders of Sinn Féin in the United States get wind of this sort of attitude, what will the implications of that be? I think it's 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 an inexcusable stance to take in something like this. I think we always need to be very careful about what we say in these circumstances because the environment in which we operate, cancel culture, let's call it, when you say something, whether you're step, stepping into the trans debate, whether you're stepping into an awful lot of political debates at the moment, uh, people often say you're not allowed to say that anymore. And uh, I, of course, reject that. You're allowed, free speech is one of the fundamental rights 
that we we believe in and cancel culture is trampling on those free speech rights whichever side of whichever debate that that you're on um but when people express their views i think it's important to be absolutely clear with what it is that we're saying and also our interpretation of what other people are saying that's a prelude to me asking you when you say that Sinn Fein have said this and said that i presume you mean that individual members of Sinn Fein have been tweeting and one could interpret their remarks as support for for Hamas. Um, but yeah, I, I, said, I, I, I said Sinn Féin members have been tweeting, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. And, and I'm just in the interests of the, knowing how that can be interpreted and in, in this very, very febrile way in which people interpret our remarks, not least. I haven't seen any official Sinn Féin party response to this yet. Have you? I was listening to the leader of Sinn Féin on radio today. She denied seeing some of the tweets that were pointed out to her and she she got quite aggressive with the interviewer. But, you know, it, it's clear if you look at various Sinn Féin members and their profiles on X, for example, it just would, wouldn't fill you with hope at the moment. I, I think there's a lot of pressure on Sinn Féin now to actually stand up and come out and be pretty unequivocal in its views about this one way or the other. But clearly, you know, this is a situation that is now going to just add to the awful global geopolitical backdrop that um, has been evolving for some time now. I'd be really interested eventually to discover the footprints of Russia in this Hamas attack, for example, because, you know, stories about Hamas being meeting Russians a lot over the last couple of years, vowing to help weaken the West. Everything we talk about, like Central and Western Africa as well at the moment, you know, the footprint of Russia in there and indeed to some extent China is also, I think, very, very telling. China uh, but, has not exactly condemned Hamas no, either. I it has not. What, what, what's my favourite saying on this podcast, Jim? Everything is related. Everything is connected to everything else. Yeah. Iran has recently announced gleefully that Russia has invested in the last while uh, $3 billion worth of capital spending in the Iranian economy. And the Ukrainians over the weekend announced their count of Iranian Shahed attack drones that have been unleashed on Ukrainian territory over the, just the month of September. And it was 500. In the entire winter period uh, last winter, six months of winter, a total of 1,000 Shahed drones were fired at Ukraine. So it's quite clear that Iran is supplying ever more drones to Russia. In one month, we got half of the six-month total last year. And Russia is now under license from Iran, uh, producing its own Shahed at attack drones. And the, the idea is exactly the same one that Hamas used to get around Israel's anti-missile Iron Dome defences over the weekend is that you, if you release enough of these things, you can eventually overwhelm any defensive, existing defensive shield. And the Iranians and the Russians are clearly massively in bed with each other. Russia has made sure that Iran is in, has been invited to join the BRICS, that uh, loose arrangement of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Uh, they want Iran to be part of it. So the the Iranian-Russian ties are very, very clear and growing. And Iran is armor supporter of Hamas and, of course, Hezbollah elsewhere in the West Bank and in Lebanon in particular. 
So everything is related to everything else. So I think you're absolutely right to raise the footprint of the Russians in this conflict, as well as the Iranians. A parting thought here, Chris, is that the Middle East still accounts for one third of the world's supply of crude oil. So um, oil markets were already extremely volatile in recent times. And I think that volatili- volatility sets to remain, is set to remain a feature of the landscape. Uh, Chris, moving on to the discussion about interest rates, that is an ongoing discussion for us. Last Friday, we had the latest job markets report for September from the United States, an increase of 336,000 in non-farm payrolls or employment. And there was, over the previous two months, July and August, there was an upward revision of 119,000. So still an incredibly strong labor market. Uh, but if you look at the earnings component, early earnings up by just 0.2%, which is pretty tame in the circumstances. So lots to ponder there for the Federal Reserve, which has always focused in on the strength of the labor market as driving, partly driving its interest rate policy. It won't get a lot of solace from this sort of jobs report. But on the other hand, that tight labor market isn't exactly feeding through to a significant increase in wage pressures. Is this the Goldilocks scenario being achieved by the Fed? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, so far it is, yes, yeah. absolutely. That's what the numbers explicitly say. And it actually supports that very minority view that I've mentioned once or twice on this part, which is that the inflation that we had, remember that original debate way back in the day about whether or not the inflation impulse was going to be temporary or not, and whether or not the Federal Reserve would have to do very much to cure it, because if it was going to be temporary, then the central bank could sit back and relax. The central banks, including the Fed, especially the Fed, have not sat back and relaxed. But there is a minority view that says inflation was going to go up all on its own because of A, what happened in the pandemic, and B, what happened as a result of energy prices. And if you just waited, it was going to come back down all of its own accord, and you didn't need to panic as a central banker, or indeed as anybody else. And I think this is a further small piece of evidence, supportive, not conclusively, of that view that inflation was going to come down anyway. And in terms of the labor market inflation, wage inflation that you rightly mentioned there, uh, the surprise on Friday was very strong, very tight labor market, loads of jobs, very low unemployment, full employment in the U.S. economy, and next to no wage inflation. I mean, there is productivity growth in the United States, and 0.2% on the month, very roughly, would have been equated in my head to what productivity would have probably done on the month. 
So in real terms, I don't think there is any wage inflation in the United States. I suspect the unit labor cost data is going to be very good if those one-month numbers are repeated. Use your caveats. Don't rely too much on one-month numbers. But the Goldilocks scenario, the inflation coming down all on its own scenario, is very much intact. I'm actually more worried about the other side of this debate, which says that if this bond market route, the rise in long-term interest rates that has been sparked by the central banks, the Federal Reserve in particular, but our own ECB and Bank of England as well, is very close to breaking something very significant in the world economy. We saw perhaps a prelude to this with the regional banking crisis in the United States earlier on this year. Um, it may not be that exactly to be repeated, but some degree of stress in financial markets and therefore the economy will be exposed if this continues. And I'm very worried about what's happening in bond markets and the capacity of bond markets to break something pretty fundamental in the financial system. And, and so I repeat something that we talked about a few podcasts ago about the external storm clouds gathering for the Irish economy, which is initially at least this financial market thing sparked by bond yields. I think the equity markets are extremely fragile. And I do think that the arguments for the upcoming budget, which at the time of recording this podcast is tomorrow, I think the arguments grow by the hour for a more prudent course of action and not to do a giveaway budget. Uh, the the other thing, of course, is is the Israeli situation, this geopolitical tension that is raised by all of this, the threats, potential that they are. We hope that they don't eventuate, as the Americans might say. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a risk. And we deal in risks. We deal in probabilities. And all of the external environmental risks for the Irish economy are growing, not shrinking. And I do think that if I was a forecaster for the Irish economy, I would be shading my economic forecasts, I would be reducing my corporation tax receipt forecasts, and I would be very, very cautious tomorrow if I was the finance minister. Yeah, in that, in that context, the ESRI published its autumn quarterly economic outlook last week, and it's forecasting that GDP would contract by 1.6% this year and expand by 3.5% in 2024. And then when you look at the more meaningful measure of domestic economic activity, modified domestic demand, it is forecast to expand by a modest, let it be said, 1.8% in 2023 and a little bit stronger at 2.4% in 2024. Um, and this downward revision to growth prospects um, is driven by the slowing global economy, the impact of the elevated cost of living pressures and higher interest rates on the consumer here. And the other thing that the ESRI was basically saying, which is hard to disagree with, is that what we're now seeing is basically the ending or the dissipation of the post-COVID bounce and growth is now starting to revert to more normalized levels. And of course, the risks to that normalization process are posed by external developments and bond yields and what's happening there at the moment obviously feeds into that significantly. Uh, the other thing the ESRI warned was that tax cuts should adjust for wage inflation only and that the breach of the government's own 5% expenditure growth rule can only be justified if the excess spending is used to boost investment. Uh, so a very, very clear 
budgetary message from the ESRI there. Personally, I would find it difficult to disagree with any of that sort of economic analysis, but I do think it is ignoring the political reality that we've discussed many times. A part of the ESRI quarterly also had a small piece of analysis on the Irish housing market, uh, which I found quite interesting. It is saying that we need to be building up to 35,000 houses per annum at the moment to meet demographic need. I think actually uh, the demand is stronger than that. But it then interestingly went back and looked at the period 2011 to 2017 at what happened, housing supply and house prices. And basically over that period, we delivered an average of 7,600 residential units per annum. Okay, and one of the key reasons for that was all of the developers that went into liquidation. Okay, and we've lived through that. We know the story. But it then goes and says that if policymakers back in 2009, 2010 had been able to anticipate the growth in the economy over the coming decade and the population growth in the country over that decade, and if the capacity to supply housing was there, and if 15,000 houses per annum had been delivered instead of 7,600 between 2011 and 2017, well, then house prices would be 9% lower by 2017. And that would be, in my view, an incredibly desirable outcome. But um, it didn't happen. We, we have often discussed, Chris, the dynamics of the housing market and the importance of housing supply. Personally, I feel very vindicated by this piece of economic research, which does show that its supply has had a huge impact on um, house prices. Yes. And the question I would have for you, Jim, is why didn't we build those houses? Developers going into liquidation is the key reason. And I have to say personally, um, and I've said this many times, and this is a a bit like entering into very dangerous territory again, like the Palestinian situation or the trans debate, whatever. You're going Uh, to be cancelled for whatever you uh, say next, Jim. Dare dare you criticise NAMA in this country? I mean, NAMA, NAMA is being held up as a paragon of everything that's good by many people, and particularly by official Ireland. Um, I believe NAMA's approach has been very flawed. Um, And a a lot of reasons for saying that. One is all developers were treated abysmally. So whether you were a good, bad, or indifferent developer, you were treated the same way. Um, And many developers were forced out of business and many developers had extraordinarily difficult relations with NAMA during that period after 2011, 2012, or after when NAMA was formed, a lot of them were forced out of business. And, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you want to deliver housing supply, you need developers. If you don't have developers, you won't deliver housing supply. Another criticism... Hang on, let me ask you, surely all you need to build more houses is Owen O'Brien as the housing minister. Indeed, indeed. Well, that, that, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? I, I, I wonder if Owen had been in charge of housing since 2011-12, how different would the outcome have been? Yes, I think that's the the, the, the really good question. Um, no different in my view, because one of the one, one of the other documents that was released over the, over the last few days was a statement, a financial statement by by the Department of Finance, showing receipts, expenditures, and the op- essentially the opening position for the budget. Am I right in describing it as that? That's correct. Yeah, it's it's basically the estimate of receipts and expenditure to the end of twenty twenty three, 
and to the end of 2024. A couple um, of things strike pre, me about pre-budget. that. Pre-budget, and obviously when the budget measures are introduced, these figures will change. A couple of things strike me about that. One, uh, a line item, a curiosity for me, was that they actually, as part of the receipts of general government, listed the amount of money that NAMA seems to return to government in, in some shape or form, their profits, if you like. Is that right? Uh, that is correct, yeah. And that has been one of the faults, the second big fault with NAMA, in my view, um, this notion of a profit metric as a key performance indicator for NAMA, in my view, was totally wrong. It's flawed. Because well, the obvious question, Jim, is if they're there to make money, they're doing what they've been asked to do. But they're not there to make money. They, they were there to ma- manage a NASA base on behalf of the state. Okay, and to, to manage that asset base, as in uh, development, construction development, um, it paid a certain price to uh, the developers and then took control of the portfolio. But obviously, the lower the price it paid the developers, um, the more it screwed the developers, uh, but the more profit it would make itself. So and- this speaks to a, a hobby horse of mine, particularly in the context of the UK, which is which is all about planning and economic control which is, and you can see it, for example, in the NHS, is that when you set people targets, they often are incentivized to meet them. And from what I hear you saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please tell me if I'm wrong. NAMA has been set a financial target, which it has met, or indeed perhaps even exceeded, and everybody pats themselves on the back and perhaps even gets big bonuses as a result of meeting these financial targets. But we, we pose them the wrong question. We, we set the wrong target is what I hear you saying, and that what they should have been asked to do was build houses. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the what NAMA should have been doing, I think the clue is in the title, NASA, as, excuse me, National Asset Management Agency. Instead of the, that, actually, NAMA turned into a National Asset Disposal Agency. Uh, you know, it took all these properties, disposed of most of them very, very quickly, um, left a lot of value on the table. I think actually cost the state a lot of money ultimately that could have been earned if it had done its job uh, in the title as in managing assets rather than disposing of assets as quickly as possible. And I would admit here that the political process certainly fed into the speed with which many of those assets were disposed. But that aside, I think NAMA has been a key part of the problem. And I, I think the uh, this notion of focusing in on the profit it might or might not deliver was totally the wrong metric. And we, we've seen from areas like banking, if you give the wrong incentives, you will get um, suboptimal outturns. And I certainly think NAMA has been a suboptimal outturn. Um, it is something that official Ireland will never admit to. Um, I remember before when Michael Noonan was in opposition as the finance spokesperson, um, he was stating that if he came into government, the first thing he would do is um, change NAMA. Um, In fact, when he became Minister for Finance, he actually uh, became totally sucked in with the NAMA thing and basically exacerbated everything and supported everything that NAMA was doing. That's a kind of an irrelevant argument, I guess, at this stage. But the, the point is, if adequate housing supply had been delivered over those years, the housing market would be a very different animal at the moment. And NAMA has got to take some responsibility for that. 
The other more macro point I'd make about the documents that have been released, the discussion that's been had about the pre-budget period, is that we're doing this all wrong, Jim. Uh, the way in which we do this is both symptomatic of and causative of the short-termism that is so prevalent in our policy making, uh, not just in Ireland, but also here in the UK. Here in the UK, we're beginning to realise at last, it's been present in the numbers for some time, but it's entering the popular narrative that the one thing that we don't do is invest in ourselves. The British don't invest in their own economy. Capital spending has been at the bottom of the OECD league table for years, and we've been living off past glories. I think I read that phrase this morning in the FT, and the data supports all of that kind of stuff. And as you said, in a slightly different context in your earlier remarks about the budget, this should really should be uh, the extent to which we are going to spend any of this money that we have in Ireland as a result of booming tax receipts. It should be focused on investment rather than other forms of spending. But the problem is the short-term nature of the budget. Over the weekend, we got these figures, which should really have been in the public domain for quite some time as part of a medium-term, longer-term discussion about where we essentially try to steer the fiscal ship over the long term rather than over the next 10 minutes, which is what it appears to me. And one example of what I'm talking about was over the weekend, I read that the, the two big spending departments, health and social welfare, were still finalizing and arguing and rowing about their budgets for next year. I mean, they this should have been... They still out today, Chris. This should have been settled ages ago. We should Literally. not be doing this at midnight. And that if you want to have proper grown-up adult discussions about the fiscal future of Ireland, this has to be placed in a medium to long-term context and not all about budget day giveaways. And the, the short-termism just permeates absolutely everything, doesn't it? And the other thing that I would suggest, I know we've talked about cancelling the budget in the context of trying to make it a more longer-term, medium-term discussion. We clearly need to budget but the budget is the wrong way to do that. Uh, the, the, the figures that were released over the weekend immediately led to a discussion about how we're going to spend or allocate. You know, Is it going to be tax cuts? Is it going to be current spending? Is it going to be one-off spending? Is it going to be capital spending? The forecasts for next year. Surely the right thing to do is to say that the, in, at the end of 2023, we're in the final quarter now, we know with reasonable certainty what the numbers for 2023 look like, and those are the numbers that we should be distributing. And that the numbers for 2024, which we're now arguing about and talking about distributing, will do it this time next year. And we need to stop distributing and fighting over and slicing and dicing forecast tax revenues and expenditures. It's nuts. Yeah, it, it is nuts, Chris. Absolutely. And I really look forward to Thursday morning here in Dublin. We're doing a private event together where I think we get an opportunity to chew through these sorts of ideas based on the budget that is actually presented. Chris Johns and Jim Power are available for all budgetary discussions <laughs> at, a, at, a, at a very reasonable fee. That's the commercial, Chris. Before I wrap up, Chris, I would just like to refer back again to that 750 million undershoot that is predicted for corporation tax this year. Um, we got manufacturing output data for August on Monday morning from the CSO. And manufacturing here is made up of two components. There's the modern component, which is basically the multinational sector of which um, the chemical and pharma part is incredibly important. And then we have the traditional sector where food production is a very influential part of that. 
But in the three months to August, on a year-on-year basis, um, overall manufacturing output was down by 11%. The modern sector was down by 14.2%. The traditional sector was down by 5.6%. And in the year to August alone, output from modern sector was down by 31.3%. So it is this weakness in output from the modern manufacturing sector dominated by chemical and pharma that is feeding through very strongly into what we're seeing on the corporation side at the moment, the corporation tax side at the moment. So in that context, I would agree with you uh, that a prudent approach to fiscal management would be totally appropriate in budget 2024. But that ain't what we're going to see. The economic environment, Jim, is changing very, very rapidly. One of the websites that I look at for just ongoing daily news about global economics has as its headlines today uh, all sorts of different things not least oil and energy and all these other things that we go on about but one of the headlines is ireland industrial production contracts at a record pace industrial production in ireland sank at a record pace of 25.8 percent year on year in august of this year and that these are the sorts of things that people are starting to notice the environment the economic environment for this budget Uh, for all of us, is changing very, very rapidly. Good to talk, Jim. And on that somewhat not cheerful note, uh, we'll regroup and next time we'll be talking about what actually happened in the budget. Looking forward to that, mate. Absolutely, Chris. Good to talk. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.